Hello and welcome to this, a podcast from the Manchester Literary and Philosophical Society, MCR Talks History. On today's episode, health. As we continue to feel the effects of the coronavirus, we're recording this from a safe socially distanced Alongside me is Jessica White and me, Adam Waddingham. Hiya. If you didn't listen to our last podcast, my name is Jessica White and I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Manchester. I look at the history of female identity from the 1970s with a specialisation in Mosside and Hume in Manchester. And just like Jess, I'm a PhD student also at Manchester. I work on the history of ideas and the development of Euroscepticism. And I'm just entering my second year now. <laughs> um, so the podcast series came about in lockdown for members as a way to interact with the history and culture of Manchester in a new and different way. And what we aim to do is shed light on different aspects of Manchester's history in a way that probably or maybe hasn't been done before or a different side to Manchester's history that we're not familiar with. So on the last episode we looked at places and spaces of commemoration and we looked at um, statues within Manchester and we also looked at the Manchester Carnival. This week we're going to be looking at the health of Manchester. Manchester has a special place in the history of Britain's health system which we're going to speak about today but we're also going to have appearances from two other specialists in the area, Will Ranger and Andrew Seaton. We, of course, been recording this in line with current health regulations at safe distance. So these are, these <laughs> discussions have all taken place over Zoom. Uh, so in in that case, I would like to apologise if there are any kind of sound issues. That is because it is hard to record under these circumstances. It definitely is. And just for context for everyone. So um, I'm currently recording this in a cupboard. And I know, Jess, you're... You're also at home as well. So it is It is a difficult and uh, interesting moment. But I think health has never seemed so important for people. Um, we both at the moment, you know, and everyone listening to this will have lived through the effects of coronavirus. Um, and I guess just by way of starting, really, what kind of strikes you about Manchester today when we think about our health history, Jess? What kind of jumps out to you? Well, I think for me, being so involved in the university which is complete opposite the MRI and Manchester's science department itself is huge. I feel that having an excellent health system is really at the core of Manchester's civic identity. And as we'll speak about and as we'll hear from Andrew, Manchester was really at the forefront of innovative health practices, not only from 1948, but even before that, before the NHS even came into place. So much alongside Manchester's history of being at the forefront of radical activity, I also think it's at the forefront of a lot of health history. Yeah, hugely. And I think kind of that really strikes a tone with, like you say, uni being so close to the MRI, the kind of building of the MRI in partnership with the university. I think that's something else that comes out from a discussion we'll have a bit later on uh, when we look at Stephanie Stowe's work. Um, and I also kind of think the kind of responsive and preventative healthcare. Manchester is a place that's not just kind of responding to health, but actually trying to take a lead in preventative healthcare mm. is, is really interesting. Yeah, so Stephanie Snow is academic at the University of Manchester, but she specialises in the history of um, Manchester's uh, health system. And she speaks a lot about, importantly, kind of key figures uh, within Manchester's health history, particularly James Niven. Who was James? 
So James Niven is one of Manchester's um, prominent kind of uh, chief medical officers at a point when kind of uh, regional municipalities uh, had kind of health officials and health um, individuals leading at a local level. And this um, the story of James is uniquely tied to kind of the Spanish flu, as it so-called Spanish flu of 1917 and that period. It is ultimately quite a sad story. James, unfortunately, um, takes his life eventually. But as one of these public health officials, he is one of the first to kind of pioneer and develop, I guess, many of the things that we come to associate today with what's, you know, termed lockdown. So looking at closing public spaces, quarantining, which, you know, has a, a kind of a longer history, but Niven really applies these in the, the kind of urban space of Manchester. And is a really early proponent of putting health and public welfare above kind of economic need. And of course, in the context of 1917, during the middle of the First World War, Niven's kind of need for these kind of lockdowns obviously kind of falls on on kind of unsympathetic ears. But he does have a number of successes in Manchester that stand out comparatively different to other cities. I think what's so interesting about Niven is that what we would call, he, he practices what we call social medicine, where he looked beyond, you know, he looked beyond the microscope and he understood how this, the environments in which people live really affect their health, stuff that is common sense today, but was really at the forefront of public health thinking. So he liaised with the sanitary authorities in and around Manchester to make sure that town planning was done in a way that improved the health of the working poor to improve their the health in general and like you say to prevent fever, smallpox, measles, all these diseases that really thrived in dirty environments. Niven was kind of one of those people who realised that fixing the environment would fix their health problems. Definitely, definitely and I think that's something actually that um, kind of Stephanie Snow picks up on. So you kind of wonder if it's just worth saying a little bit about the article um, that kind of Stephanie's written. Well, Stephanie, as I said, she's not a um, she's not a historian. She's a specialist in um, uh, health at Manchester, and what that kind of what her research that we've kind of read about for this podcast, which is kind of health and Manchester in historical perspective, is that she kind of sees Manchester as one of the first. Because Manchester and its peripheral counties are so um, nebulous, she argues that Manchester was one of the first local authorities that managed to interconnect all these different councils in a way that kind of hadn't been done before. Um, She talks about the connectedness between Salford, um, Manchester, the central Manchester, Oldham, and a way for local the local authority to manage all these different areas in a way that worked really well and which hadn't really been done before Hmm. I mean the thing that really jumped out for me and I I, I kind of really liked how Stephanie took not just kind of um, kind of a look at institutional development but kind of also embedded the individuals as well so I know we've talked about kind of James James Niven but also you know Stephanie pulls out the work of you know Dr Duncan um, and kind of those those longer histories of individuals, which I think are really important, but alongside, you know, the kind of joint health units and these kind of institutional developments as well. That kind of struck me as really interesting, Jess. Yeah, and what, what, I, what I've enjoyed about her research was, one, the, the changes in approaches to mental health. Salford was really at the forefront of, kind of, without trying to sound too crude, kind of de- 
clinicalizing, if that is even a word, making less clinical um, approaches to mental health. In Salford, they created these connections between the psychiatric hospitals and community care and social workers to really make um, treatment of mental health a community endeavor as opposed to something that was embedded in hospitals, which is for now for us, for mental health problems, seems the norm. Salford was really at the forefront of that, and that was around kind of the 50s. Yeah, definitely, and that kind of, that partnership comes across, I think, really clearly in some of the stuff, um, pulling out both pre- and post-war, so the kind of links with with the University of Manchester. I feel we're giving them quite a big plug in this, but kind of, um, they have been, you know, at the <laughs> forefront of kind of work around, you know, Jill Poley and kind of diabetes work, um, but also actually kind of, the, the actual physical constructions, and we talk about institutions and individuals, I think sometimes in looking at institutional change, literally building things like the, the kind of MRI orthopaedics wing in, a, in, the early, in the earlier periods is something that universities contribute to. So not just kind of the intellectual capital, but actually, you know, the bricks and mortar as well. Well, exactly. And I think that idea of space is really important. And she looks at, while she looks at the MRI, um, she also pays attention to Mosside and the and the work done to accommodate ethnic minority communities within Manchester, which is obviously from the, from the 50s was becoming um, a huge site for the Windrush generation, particularly African-Caribbean communities. In the 1970s, there was greater attention paid to the disproportionate number of African-Caribbean people um, being treated for sickle cell anemia. And it was in Mossside that you see the first sickle cell centre opened um, in the UK with a focus on educating those people of African-Caribbean origin who had sickle cell anemia. And I think as well, one of the... um... One of the other things I really liked in this kind of paper was pulling out... So it talks about the World Health Organization recognising Manchester as an age-friendly city, which I thought was really nice, but there's this kind of um, point that's kind of quite prominent about lessons from the past, and kind of thinking about um, some of the organisations in Manchester are actually taking a really key role in kind of unexpected age, unexpected areas of kind of... Um, age relations, if you like. So the LGBT Foundation, just off Canal Street, for example, working with um, elderly populations around identity, which isn't something that immediately jumps to mind when we kind of necessarily think of health. But I think, like it says, this kind of meshing of health and social has a really um, important way to think about stuff. Yeah, definitely. Well, as we've discussed there, health and how it's conceptualized covers a broad range so we sent adam off in the digital (laughs) sphere (laughs) to discuss how health and work are particularly important for manchester it's a cold and drizzly day in june when i sat down for a socially distanced coffee with Will Ranger, an award-winning living wage campaigner and community organiser. As coronavirus has shown, health pretty much covers every aspect of life, but its effects have been sharply felt when it comes to the world of work and our working cultures. I started by asking Will to explain what the living wage campaign is and why historically Manchester has been important when we think about ways of working. Living Wage Campaign is, generally speaking, an attempt by civil society organisations, churches, master trade unions and so on, uh, to campaign for big employers to pay their staff a real living wage. 
Um, the real living wage, as defined by the Living Wage Foundation, um, which is calculated in to include the cost of living of an area as well as um, other metrics. Um, it is calculated by the Living Wage Foundation, which was set up uh, by Citizens UK, the UK's home of community organising. And the success of the campaign has resulted in over a billion pounds being put into the pockets of low paid workers. In terms of the importance of the campaign for, for Manchester, I think it is fair to say that Manchester has a long history of, of organisations, of groups of individuals advocating on behalf of um, people on low pay, working class communities and so on, uh, in response to mass changes in the workforce and in terms of urbanisation, industrialisation and so on. And so um, we have found that the living wage campaign in Greater Manchester has been um, at home here. So I'm very conscious, Will, we're sat having um, a cup of coffee, a very socially distanced cup of coffee. Uh, um, and kind of COVID has thrown these questions of how people kind of work and the ways in people work in healthy, in healthy working environments into kind of sharp perspective. Um, I wonder if it's just worth saying kind of a little bit of how you've kind of found the last couple of months as in a public health um, issue for kinds of ways that you're working, but also kind of how other people have had to adapt to changing work environments as well. I think me personally, um, I've found that a key part of community organising is the uh, building of relationships between people. And so obviously that is uh, much harder when you can't actually go to people's workplaces or places of worship or whatever it may be. So uh, there is a kind of added dimension of difficulty, um, but it's not impossible. You can still stay relational and still uh, maintain relationships over Zoom and uh, through kind of phone calls and emails and things. It's not ideal. Uh, but it is not impossible. Um, we actually were, um, our campaign group, were looking to um, drop a new list of kind of campaigning priorities, but actually we decided to refocus that because of the kind of the discourse around key workers, and that's been something we've been looking at, ways to ensure that key workers in Great Manchester and across the country are paid enough to uh, live on. But yeah, not impossible, not impossible. <laughs> now I really liked in there where you're talking about kind of the ideas of key workers and mm. I think one of the things that comes through particularly in looking at the history of Manchester um, is these kind of historical roots to kind of ideas of fair working practices and kind of fair conditions for workers um, in kind of a healthy and um, livable sense. Um, I just wondered if there's kind of anything that you'd say in terms of how Manchester is this kind of place has experienced these kind of moments for workers before of changes, say, in the, the health of their condition, you know, the health of their working environment? Well, certainly. I mean, Manchester's history as a massive industrial centre um, has resulted in it, the, the, pl it, the place itself being a centre for um, kind of working class activism and for um, pushing back against exploitative working practices. Um, and indeed, I believe um, the obviously the, the um, cooperative movement was founded up in Rochdale, but I believe that yeah, the Trade Union Congress had uh, one of its first um, centres in Manchester as well. Uh, so it's not a coincidence that the the resonance of the living wage campaign is in a similar place. Um, so, in terms of kind of where we are at the moment, I think it's important to have a conversation about um, how we as a society are going to 
rebuild after this. Um, and there's been a slogan among civil society organizations called um, Build Back Better, which is basically the idea that you, we, we look at a, a society in a more holistic way and we can look at that through an economic sense, through a social sense, but also through a health sense. Um, and we decide, we are the masters of our own destiny in that sense. We decide what the economy is like, we decide what society is like, because these are social constructs. We all we build societies and economies to serve us. So if we can have this opportunity to kind of start fresh, then that conversation will is happening in Manchester already. You don't need me to tell you that. Everyone, everyone's already talking about it. Yeah, and those kind of ways of, like you say, kind of building back. Um, I'm just very conscious of something like, for example, some of the campaigns that Manchester saw, those kind of acute campaigns around kind of, I guess what we'd call today the introduction of health and safety legislation, but, you know, safe working environments is something that's quite ingrained, actually, in Manchester's kind of social history, I think. Mm. Well, I mean, one of the things that um, I thought was particularly uh, fascinating was how health and safety as a concept has gone from this thing that has been like perceived as over burdensome and uh, derided as you know silly and people in Westminster and Whitehall say oh you can't can't hold a cup of tea or whatever you know these nonsense stories here um, but then as soon as there was a question of um, employers forcing people to go back to work um, an obscure part of um, health and safety legislation was put on Twitter and they said, oh, this is the legislation where if you think it's not safe, you are legally entitled not to go into work. And that was reshared about 100,000 times. People going, oh, I didn't know that I didn't have to go in if I think it's unsafe. And obviously, exposure to COVID would, would give you pause to think. Uh, so um, I think that is a kind of an interesting dynamic as well, where people have been made to be numb to this idea that safety is this kind of... Uh, this thing that is, you know, I don't know how to say it. It's, it's kind of this thing that people um, have been taught almost to kind of look down upon. But then as soon as it comes into focus, people go, well, obviously everyone wants to be safe. So it's one of these um, changing concepts that I think is um, important to, to consider going forward when we do rebuild. Yeah, definitely. And um, one thing I've just quickly, while you've been talking, Will, scrabbling around trying to find is, so you were completely right when you said about the, the first trade union congress that was held here in Manchester. And um, a little bit of a shout out for uh, the University of Manchester's History and Heritage tours where they, they actually cover this. So off from Saxville Garden, um, Saxville Gardens and the campus around Saxville, the North Campus, um, is the original site, uh, the original building of one of the trade union congress um, meetings that took place, one of those first meetings. And in that kind of vein then, well, I guess one thing that kind of jumped to mind as well is, if we're looking at kind of fair working practices and kind of what we'd call the living wage campaign, how successful has that been then in Manchester? Well, in well nationally, there's been there's now over six thousand. I want to say it's close to six thousand five hundred living wage living wage employers, and that and as I said earlier, since two thousand one, when the foundation was set up, uh, there's been over a billion pounds been put into the pay packets of low paid workers. In terms of Greater Manchester, there is a lot of work to be done. Um, I know that, um, I want to say Oldham Council and um, Salford Council and now Manchester Council are all accredited with the foundation or in the process of accrediting. Um, the University of Manchester accredited uh, in 2019, February 2019, which is what I was proud to be part of as a campaign. Um, and now there's uh, there's also a Cheadle Mosque in, uh, I want to say, 
Stockport. <laughs> yeah, Stockport, that yeah. sounds right. Um, yeah. they, are the, they were the first mosque in the UK to accredit the foundation. Um, there's also lots of trade unions like Unison doing fantastic work on this issue, particularly in the care sector. So there is a lot of um, groundswell support for this, but I think there are, um, there are notable exceptions which increasingly people are finding untenable. So the main examples that people often give is the um, Premier League clubs. Mm. So um, in, in, the, in the Premier League at the moment, there are uh, five teams that are, uh, are accredited for foundation, and they are, off the top of my head, West Ham, Chelsea, Everton, Liverpool, and Crystal Palace. And the other 15 aren't. Now, obviously, you don't need to know much about football to know that Manchester United and Manchester City are quite well off. <laughs> so, um, if, if, and also as a Man United fan, the fact that Liverpool have already not only won the league, they've also beaten us to that as well is slightly annoying. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's frustrating, but yeah. Okay, so there's still, still work to be done then. Yes, definitely. Okay, um, so I'm conscious uh, my, my coffee's slightly running to the end of its cup. Um, so, I guess just to wrap up, Will. Um, is there really something to be said about then? I think the history of Manchester, the history of its working practices and health, kind of those, those intertwined bits that really, at the moment, we've kind of lived through this period, this, this moment where all of those have kind of been thrown into sharp, sharp contrast. But I guess historically looking at Manchester, these kind of practices of safe work and health. I think what you said at the beginning about um, how health is something we have now come to realize touches are all part of our lives. I think that is um, important to recognize either both from a Manchester point of view and just from a general perspective as well. Um, if health can be really understood to mean not just, oh, I've got a cough, I'm sick, I'm going to go to the hospital. It also means, okay, are you stressed at work because you don't know you're going to make the bills at the end of the month, hence the importance of living wage then that's going to impact your health. If you are having to commute to work in a massively polluted environment for half an hour, for 40 minutes, that's going to impact your health. Um, if you are having to work very long hours, you might not get enough sleep or you might not have enough leisure time, that's going to affect your health. So I'm looking at work in a broader context, not just about your health and safety at work itself, also what patterns of work we are doing as a society that is also important in terms of Manchester I know that there's been quite a lot of recent um, kind of jobs created in the kind of the so-called gig economy um, and again for people who work in them they will tell you themselves it's incredibly precarious and it's it can be good for people particularly young people students you know they might want to make an extra 50 quid a week to, you know working for delivery that's fine but if you're trying to support a family it's completely unsustainable so there is a kind of a balance that needs to be struck there as well, which um, we need to, as a society, go on and think about. Okay, well, thank you, Will. That's really, really helpful and really insightful. That was Will Ranger joining me, who is a living wage campaigner and community organiser. Thank you. Thanks, Will, for that really excellent discussion and great insight into the Living Wave Foundation. Yeah, and despite kind of being socially distanced, you know, kind of doing stuff over Zoom again, I think like Will kind of pulled out really, these kind of ways of conceptualising health go beyond, a bit like we kind of talked about already, kind of beyond immediate healthcare. So thinking about kind of health in a mental and physical sense, I think goes beyond kind of hospitals or kind of clinics to also kind of think about 
uh, you know, workplaces as well. Um, I'm quite conscious, Jess, because we're not we're not actually allowed on campus at the moment. It's quite it's quite disruptive not being able to go into a workplace, but it, it has made me think about kind of health and safety in a different way. And also, it's not only campuses that we're not allowed to go into, but we're also for the first time not really encouraged to go to our local health centre or GP practice, which kind of leads us on to our next guest. Yeah, so despite being socially distanced right now from our traditional health centres and buildings which provide care, arguably they've never been more important now. So to discuss this and much more, Jess went along to discuss all things health with Andrew Seaton, who's a PhD candidate at New York University. Cool. So with us now is Andrew Seaton from New York University. Um, Andrew, do you want to just explain to us a bit about what is exactly your research? Yeah, hi. Um, so my research is, um, a, uh, is a new history of the National Health Service. Um, most histories of the National Health Service that have been written are uh, focused on um, kind of uh, charting uh, kind of internal reforms, the administration of the service. Uh, and I'm trying to write a different type of history of the NHS, which is more um, broadly situated in politics, society, culture, all these things that the NHS obviously is such a pivotal institution in, in Britain speaks to. Uh, so I'm trying to write um, a political, social and cultural history of the, of the National Health Service. And you've recently published an article um, about one as- particular aspect of the NHS, which is health centres. What is the history of health centres within Britain? Yeah, so health centres are one of these things that are kind of seemingly boring and mundane, but it's, it's something that I actually get quite excited about. Um, uh, so health centres uh, will be you know, familiar to many of your listeners as um, kind of uh, places where they will go and access general practitioner services, nursing services, you know, get an immunisation, whatever it might be. But actually, um, that way of, and that form of general practice is actually a very recent phenomenon. So at the beginning of the National Health Service, um, general practice looked very, very different to what we might uh, know today. So general practice was a very small-scale operation where... Uh, you usually go and see your local doctor, usually working alone or maybe with one other doctor, small kind of small units of, of GPs. Then the, the doctor's surgery would often be in the doctor's own house or in something like a kind of converted shop front kind of uh, ad hoc structure. Um, things like uh, appointment systems did not exist at the beginning of the NHS and, and for a long time actually. Uh, you instead would turn up at the doctors and just wait for your turn to see the doctor. So health centres, to me, are um, a means of tracking how general practice changed over the course of the NHS. So health centres are one of these things that seem ordinary and boring and mundane, but actually are very useful to kind of see how general practice changed over the first few decades of the NHS. Yeah, I remember when I was reading your article, I was so... I think we really take them for granted, don't we, now? It's such like a normal feature of our health service. So obviously, because health centres were kind of innovative 
after the war, there had to be a bit of experimentation. And you've looked at one particular case in Manchester. What can you tell us about this particular aspect of Manchester history? So when the NHS was founded, um, in the NHS Act itself, there was a provision to provide a health centre for every community in the country. However, uh, Britain, when it came out of the Second World War, did not have a lot of money. Uh, There was a shortage of labour, there was a shortage of building materials and other resources that all were directed either towards housing or industry. And therefore, the the health centre programme really fell by the wayside. And there weren't really that many health centres in operation in the 1940s, the 1950s, and even the the early 1960s. So... um, Examples like the Manchester Health Centre, which you just mentioned, so uh, were actually very, very important in, in, in showcasing in the early years of the NHS what a health centre could do. So in 1954, a new health centre opened in Manchester called the Derbyshire House Health Centre, and it opened in the Longsite area of, of Manchester, which in itself uh, actually has other claims to importance in medical history, the the famous uh, public health reformer Edwin Chadwick, who was responsible for many of the key 19th century public health uh, legislation, was also born in Longside. So the Derbyshire Health Centre opened in 1954 in Longside, and its significance is that it is one of very, very few, just a handful of of health centres that are opened in in the early NHS. That's great. So what were kind of some of the first experiences what were patients experiences of first using one of these health centers so when the when the Derbyshire house health center opened it had um i think five general practitioners uh, as well as a nurse um and uh some public health functions like um kind of children's clinics and so on and uh, so in that sense, it was it really filled a gap in the area. There really was, um, like a lot of poorer areas in the country with social deprivation, there was a lot of under-doctoring. So, you know, it was very hard actually to access uh, a quality uh, doctor, uh, let alone other public health services. And what the Derbyshire House Health Centre offered was these facilities uh, in one place. Uh, so on that sense, uh, a lot of people welcomed the arrival of the health centre. Uh, it provided um, kind of shared, uh, kind of a one-stop shop for these kind of facilities in a way that wasn't there uh, beforehand. But in other ways, the health centre, not uncommon to other health centres throughout the country, actually um, experienced um, some degree of not hostility, but certainly ambivalence or indifference by some patients towards it. So things that were different about the Derbyshire House Health Centre that um, would have appeared quite a change to some of the early patients going to it were, A, the fact that you were going to a larger building rather than, um, you know, your local doctor's house or a shop or whatever it might be, as I mentioned, Um and the Derbyshire House Health, House Health Centre was um, based out of a kind of converted hostel. Um, so it wasn't a purpose-built building, it was a converted hostel from the late 19th century. So quite a large building that would have, to some patients, um, if you look at the, the evidence, actually appeared quite 
uh, intimidating and a little bit um, impersonal as an institution. Um, other factors that patients were worried about were things like um, if a, an appointment system was brought in, whether that would cause problems. And so there were these changes that health centres embodied that did create some um, worries among the first patients that used them. Mm. It's funny, isn't it? I'm just thinking now about how they're so ubiquitous, but uh, I saw someone just walking out of my local health centre at the end of my road and it's deserted because of COVID. Um, And I'm just wondering if we could see maybe a retreat back to these more intimate style practices where GPs operate maybe out of their house. Have you thought about this because as a result of the coronavirus pandemic? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually. So if we think about it, you know, broadly speaking, from when the NHS comes in, more of a kind of individualised model of general practice to more of a communal model by the 60s, 70s and 80s, based out of group practices and health centres. Like you said, things like the pandemic have almost, in some ways, um, seen a return to more of individualised patterns. I think another way you could see that even before the pandemic is a lot of conversations about accessing the doctor remotely through apps and through uh, kind of video Mm. calling. Um, So there there were, even before the pandemic, I think, uh, conversations about how can you provide greater access to general practitioner services um, without necessarily getting people to go into a health centre or even a hospital. Hospital is the same, right? Mm. Um, There's a real shift towards treating people at home or an attempted shift to treat people at home rather than in in hospitals. So I think, yeah, I think it's it's certainly, uh, you can see it in, in that way. Thank you so much, Andrew. That's been great. Thanks for having me. That was Jess there talking to Andrew Seaton. And I think that was also a really interesting interview again, Jess. Again, thinking about kind of the spaces of health and kind of how how health is conceptualised. And not only that, but also the importance again of Manchester. The fact that Andrew is based on the other side of the Atlantic, despite being British, of course, and that Manchester stands out in his research as an important area within the history of the NHS really is a testament to the importance of this city in regards to the health of the history of health in the UK. Definitely, and I'm, I'm kind of really conscious one of the um, one of the organisations, one of the research projects coming out of Manchester again. I told you, I'm giving such a plug for the university. <laughs> <laughs> but the NHS at 70 research project, and that's something we're both kind of aware of. Mm, but like, mm. you know, again, the NHS as kind of a, an organisation in the UK, again, looking at as institutions, I think is so important. I feel like we could go and talk about this for so much longer. There's so much that we haven't included in this discussion, particularly as we've kind of touched on the history of HIV and AIDS and Manchester's place within that history, which kind of would deserve a whole podcast in itself. So hopefully with this uh, kind of small podcast, we've given a bit of an insight into an unknown aspect of Manchester's history, which um, in turn brings this edition of MCR History Talks to a close. Thank you so much again for joining us. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at UOMPG. That's mine and Adam's collective Twitter. There's also the Manchester Lytton Phil's own Twitter page as well. So thank you, Adam. 
Thank you, Jess. <laughs> we'll see you in, in a fortnight for our next podcast, which looks at the history of tourism in Manchester. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.